Welcome to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine, where we've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm your host, Rachel Hu. And if you haven't got a chance to subscribe to this podcast, you can do that by searching for Covert Action Bulletin anywhere you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you can search. Just go ahead and search for Covert Action Bulletin. Or if you're listening in browser, you can click on subscribe right in your browser. You definitely want to keep up with updates. We're very excited to be joined today by Katie Halper, who is the host of The Katie Halper Show and co-host of the podcast Useful Idiots. Katie joins us today to share about how she was recently fired yes, fired from The Hill for talking about Israel. Katie recorded a segment for The Hill's Rising, defending Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib from attacks over calling Israel an apartheid state. And while The Hill presents itself as a channel that opposes cancel culture and censorship, somehow with all that has happened, I find that hard to believe. There's so much to get into. We're really happy to be joined now by Katie. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to have you. There's so much to get into. I know you've been doing interviews left and right, and there's been so much going on around this, but you've been recently fired from the Hill for talking about Israel. I mean, it really isn't that deep, uh, frankly, in terms of what you were talking about compared to what you could be talking about. And yet they still decided to censor your monologue. I'd love to hear more about not only what you were talking about in in this monologue, but the reason for the Hill firing you. I mean, what, what do you think? about this. Yeah, um, it's interesting. I really recommend that people uh, look at Bronco Marchatich's piece at uh, Jacobin. He kind of goes through the different potential motives that was behind the Hill uh, censoring my my monologue. Uh, the Usually what happens at the Hill when you're a host, and I was guest hosting, but usually what happens is you you write a monologue, and as other people who, who host at the Hill will tell you, there's like no editorial process. You just write the monologue, you email it to them, they load it into the teleprompter, you read it, they tape you and they release it. So they did all of that with me, except they didn't release it. Um, and they, uh, this piece at, as this piece at Jacobin uh, goes through, there's been a recently, it was just in August that the media conglomerate uh, bought the Hill, became owners of the Hill. Uh, Next our media group became owners of the Hill. And uh, just this month, uh, Sagot Value Holdings Limited, which is an investment firm based in Tel Aviv, bought uh, 6,100 shares in Nextar uh, for uh, $1 million. And there's also been kind of a shift in its editorial line. Um, They hired, uh, Nextar hired for deputy, deputy managing editor of News Nation, which is its cable channel. They hired this guy, Jake Novak, who's a journalist who was uh, the media director at the Israeli Consulate General in New York. And he has said some really outrageous things about Israel. Uh, he, su- he supports uh, Israel building more illegal settlements uh, and says it would, quote, bring peace, more peace prosperity and freedom to both Israelis and Arabs. So there's definitely some, I mean, that could, that speaks to a potential bias beyond the normal bias that we see that's just kind of ingrained um, around Israel. And, you know, this is still often the third round, but the thing about the Hill is it kind of, or rising, the show on the Hill is it kind of prides itself on being a show that lets people speak outside of the narrow 
uh, lane of kind of acceptability of what's acceptable in corporate media. But that I think we now know it was just a, uh, they just realized that that was profitable. There's no actual commitment in principle to free speech or to um, allowing debate outside of the normal uh, parameters. Yeah, no, I definitely think that this is such an important story to be paying attention to because of that. I mean, it, it, The Hill entirely brands itself as something that is against censorship. Right. It's against cancel culture. It's trying to stand in the wake of that. I mean, Rising is a show, too. It's about let's bring on everyone's opinion right. left and left right. Left and right, yeah. And so for them to do this is just, to me, it flies in the face of everything they claim to be about. So I'm curious how, how you felt about this, too, especially just as a person being there for so long. Yeah, so I, I had this was like the fourth time that I guest hosted, and I had two more gigs lined up. It was just kind of sad. I was looking at my calendar for, at stuff, and it's like hosting a rising next Monday, hosting a rising the Monday after that. Um, I I was there for like three years. I've been uh, appearing as a guest on the show, and uh, every week I was there every week. And with a couple of weeks off, but when they kind of transitioned from the the rising show with Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty, they left, started their own show uh, uh, called Breaking Points, and then they had this new rotating hosts, these rotating hosts, including Brianna Joy Gray, Robbie Suave, Kim Iverson, who left, um, Ryan Grimm, uh, who left, his co-host Emily, uh, who also left with Ryan. Batya Ungar Sargon is there. Um, so they have these, again, these rotating hosts that are left and right. Um, and so uh, in terms of how I felt, I did feel, and I had also shot a, a pilot with them uh, for this kind of leftist version of The View that I still want to do. Um, so at me, anyone out there interested in this. But um, we had shot a pilot. It was with me and Brianna Joy Gray, Abby Martin, and Rania Kalik. And uh, we released a segment from the pilot, and the segment did well. No one had any complaints. Uh, I had done well. My, my, my appearances always did, did well. My numbers were good when I was a guest. People really liked my hosting. They had really enthusiastic things to say, which was nice. And, and that says a lot when we're talking about YouTube comments, which tend to be so negative. Um, so when I basically what happened is I was told they wouldn't be releasing the radar. I spoke to the producers over the course of a few days trying to see if they could release it with having an opposing view on it afterwards. they What they told me was that there was a new policy that they had just learned about, which was that The Hill was not going to be doing op-eds, either written or video, about Israel. And that, But they said that you could still, one could still do segments about Israel. So what they're distinguishing between is a monologue, what they're called radars at The Hill, so straight to cam, no, like, straight to cam monologue. And then there's a discussion after, but the actual monologue is the radar um, versus just a talker when the hosts talk about a story. And also uh, when uh, hosts, when a guest talks about the story. So, so guests talking about a story or hosts talking about a story are not considered op-eds, even though they can, they usually do have an opinion. So what happened is they, they told me, we were trying to figure out a way to do it, um, get it out there. I was working, like talking back and forth with the producers and the producers at the Hill were great. They were supportive. They were trying to do the right thing. The higher ups didn't want to. I got a call from the uh, editor in chief of the Hill who just told me they weren't going to run the radar. Didn't really have a real reason why. Talked about it as like a pitch process that, you know, sometimes they, they 
pass on stories, but that's not at all how it works at the Hill with these radars. As I said, like there's no editorial process. They literally just run them. And like, I don't mean to, I'm not insulting producers who do editorial work. It's just not in the realm of the radars. That's yeah, not where they do the straight editorial Straight to teleprompter. Work. Yeah, that's straight just to the teleprompter. Process. Yeah. So um, then uh, when, I, when I learned that he's not going to run the radar, I then asked the producers, okay, so can I do it for my weekly segment? And this was Wednesday that he called me. So I was hoping to do it the next day. And I wasn't going to be on there and be like, the hell wouldn't let me talk about this. So I'm talking about it now. I was going to just do it as a segment. And I asked the producers that, and then they were like, uh, so this person, you know, I don't want to say her name, although I don't know why she was not, not nice to me at all. But anyway, this woman, <laughs> just being, you know, I'll respectful. keep it in my back pocket for now. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, this woman uh, who's at Nextstar emailed me and was like, hi, Katie, we just want to let you know we won't ne- be needing you to uh, do your radar tomorrow. And please, uh, you know, give us any unpaid invoices. Best of luck. And I was like, what the fuck? I really was. That was my thinking. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, that's it. I just made the mistake of trying to get a radar out there, trying to, if the radar wasn't going to happen, then trying to get it out there as a, as a segment, as a discussion. And because of that, I get fired. No like, recourse, just immediately yeah, no, yeah. zero to 100. That's yeah, crazy. Right. And there was nothing about, like, how we want to work with you. You know, you shot this pilot. Like, they don't care, I guess. I guess they're, they're it's more important for them to tow the company line than it is to make shows that people like. Because people are really excited about that. Um, and, of course, the good news is that uh, we were able to make it with Breakthrough, Breakthrough News. So I just took my script there. We made some tweaks that probably made it even better. Um, and we shot it. And... Yeah, it's doing better than some. Than I think the, I think it's been over a week since the 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 since Rising has had it put out a video that did as well as this one, which says a lot because they put out tons of clips a day. <laughs> that does actually say a yeah. lot. You know, it's kind of funny too. I don't know if you've been kind of following this, but I I had noticed this uh, on one of their like uh, videos they put out earlier. There was all these comments talking about why was Katie Helper fired. Yeah, I saw that. It was yeah. so funny to see yeah. because you were right. Like there were people that were following you that appreciated your journalism, appreciated what you brought to the show, and so of course there's going to be people outraged that this happened. And I think that there's something really important about that. And I think they should definitely, obviously, pay attention to their own fan base. But right. that's not here nor there. I mean, yeah, a lot of people apparently um, uh, emailed them that they were unsubscribing. And my Patreon has gone up, of course. That's good. That's good. I definitely think that that's important. And I think the the other element here that I, I did want to ask you more about, I mean, you wrote this great op-ed that was in the Daily Beast, and I really appreciated going through it, but thinking about how your story fits into the greater story of the way that the mainstream media treats journalists that they don't want to hear opinions from. So right. I, I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Yeah, I mean, there, there have been so many other people who uh, have been fired for speaking out on this issue. Mark Lamont Hill kind of famously, very overtly, was because of that. Um uh, Juan Cole, Norman Finkelstein, uh, Abby Martin was not allowed to speak at Georgia, the University of Georgia, because she refused to sign an oath vowing not to participate in BDS or even endorse BDS. Um, you know, some these people, some people have been able to persevere despite this, like Stephen Salida, who was a professor at uh, Urbana, uh, was fired over tweets that he wrote from his personal account over uh, 
Israel's uh, assault on Gaza. Uh, he hasn't been able to get an academic job since, uh, and he now drives a bus. So, uh, you know, different people have different kind of comeback stories. And, but it can't, you know, I'm, I'm rel- relatively lucky. I have a other, other shows, um, you know, that gave me a lot more exposure than I have on my shows. And so I, just to be honest about that. So that part does really suck. Um, and, uh, yeah, but, but it's happened, you know, if you're a Palestinian, if you're, I have some, like a little bit of a, uh, not protection, like being Jewish gives me a teeny bit of, of, uh, I don't want to say license. It gives me a little bit of, of protection, but not really, as you can see from there firing me. I mean, I'll be called like a self-loathing Jew instead of an anti-Semite, which is not that much better, but I think that it's an easier hit to survive. Um, but Norman Finkelstein is the son of Holocaust survivors and he, uh, was banned. He was denied tenure thanks to people like Alan Dershowitz who went after him. People went after Juan Cole, uh, so Yale didn't hire him. And um, they're also, there's just like, and then um, Ellie Valley, this uh, really good artist, he's had his stuff, uh, he's been smeared, he's had events um, canceled. There's a lot of that, of canceling events. Um, but even when things aren't canceled or people aren't fired or censored, they're just like, people are just labeled anti-Semites and racist. And there's such an abuse and weaponization of that term. And it's lost so much meaning. It's been so trivialized because people constantly use it when they mean they, they conflate anti-Semitism with criticism of Israel. And there is actual anti-Semitism, and it does such a disservice to people who are fighting against anti-Semitism to uh, to kind of uh, trivialize that by constantly invoking that term when it's not describing anti-Semitism. Yeah, no, you're definitely right on that. And I think it's been really interesting to see like a Jewish youth movement that's really come out firmly and say that that's not that's not what we're talking about. Right. When we talk about when we talk about Israel, we're talking about Zionism and Zionism is is like distinctly different than Judaism as a concept. Yeah, and I or think Jewishness if you're not religious. Like I'm like I'm not I don't practice Judaism, but I'm Jewish. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah. Yeah, well, fun facts. I'm also Jewish. Um, really fun facts. It's like yeah. I'm like a quarter Jewish. It's very, it's in there. Um, yeah. It's like uh, fascinating to me. It's it's very fascinating to me just because it's like, how did that happen? But I yeah. guess that's kind of cool. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, I think it's a really important thing because it's also kind of interesting to me too. I will say this about the the hill in particular. I, I'm very fascinated by this because just politically, that's so far to the right of the spectrum, frankly, of where most any outlet that deals with progressive ideas on any level, right. even liberal outlets feel at this moment. I mean, 2021, we saw the largest protests for Palestine in U.S. history. I mean, we saw people coming out in numbers and across the country in ways we hadn't seen, like public opinion on Palestine has radically shifted and changed. So the, the contents of your monologue, without a doubt, are, are in no means going outside of the realm. And I think they're relatively conservative, if you ask me, compared to what you could be saying. Yeah. So it's surprising to me in a way that they would go so far right. Right. I mean, what's interesting, and I want to make sure to like because there are organizations out there who would love nothing more than to be able to like discredit me or discredit anyone who criticizes Israel um so I wanted to make sure that my argument was really rock solid and one of the things I did was I didn't just quote Amnesty International Human Rights uh watch I quoted uh and I didn't just quote UN uh the UN and the International Criminal Court you know international uh law Israeli laws 
but I also quoted B'Tselem, this Jew, this Israeli human rights organization. Again, it shouldn't matter whether or not you're Jewish and you're criticizing Israel. But I think that, I actually think that, and I'm torn on this because part of me is like, fuck that, who cares? Like, it's not a requirement to be Jewish in order to, to criticize Israel. But I do think it is still important for optics to show people that not all Jews have the same position on Israel. Uh, I think that's really important. And I actually think that the, what APAC does and what the Anti-Defamation League does is anti-Semitic because they're conflating being Jewish with having a certain position on Israel, which in, is in itself, you know, like the whole dual loyalty anti-Semitic trope. They're perpetuating that. They're presenting Jews as this monolith. So I want to make sure that I quoted B'Tselem and I also quoted a bunch of Israeli officials and uh, and um including prime ministers, like they're much more honest about it than some of Israel's defenders here, you know, like, all right, you want to call Amnesty International Human Rights Watch anti-Semitic, which is absurd and ridiculous. I mean, who the hell believes that? Although I guess some people do. But what is B'Tselem's problem? They're just a self-load, they're a bunch of self-loathing Jews. That's that's their lane. Um, it's so obvious that one side sees this for what it is, which is apartheid, and the other side is uncomfortable with it. It's not... I mean, that what, what's more likely that people are going to be tribalist and protective and defensive? And I understand, like, I get I get that some Jews live in in a state of fear about like. Uh, they think that there's existential threats and they looked at the they look at the Holocaust and they think it would happen again. And I I understand that that trauma is there. You just can't use that trauma to justify putting other people through ethnic cleansing or apartheid. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. And I also think, too, that when we, we think about like the birth of Zionism and the birth of, of Israel just to begin with as a country, it had very little to do with caring about Jewish people's trauma. It had everything to do with the West having interest right. and, and strategic interest in the Middle East. So yeah. to me, I think that that's also like an element of this is that like, you know, the idea this, this the nation state of Israel is not even necessarily connected to all of that history because that's not why it was founded. That's not what that wasn't its purpose. And so I, I think that there's a, a lot yeah. there, too. Yeah, and it was weaponized I, by, I mean, then it, they have such an interesting, there's like this really weird, I mean, this is a whole other discussion, but there's this weird, like, also shame, sense of shame. Like, they, they constantly invoke the Holocaust as the reason that Israel has to exist. They being right-wing, hawkish, uh, you know, Israelis. Um, but they also, I think, you know, people also have a real sense of, like, self-loathing and f shame about, there's like this, this, the new Israeli, the new Jew, these bronze Jews who work the land. And there's like a real rejection of the kind of Ashkenazi uh, line of Jewishness. And anyway, that's a whole other discussion, though. Read, everyone should read Ellie Valley's, um, yeah, Diaspora Boy, which is really good. And it's comics on crisis in America and Israel. And he has a great, he's a bunch of comics that deal with this, the new Israeli Jew and the old school Jew. Yeah. No, there's there's a lot there. It's like a whole separate topic, but it's it's interesting to me. And I, I wanted to ask this. I, I was really curious too. I really appreciated in your monologue how you talked about who has the right to talk about apartheid and ultimately it's people in South Africa have the right to define apartheid. And I think that even just the argument you're making that like what is happening in Israel is apartheid. I, I can't even believe that that's too far left or on some level. I just, I can't even believe that on some level that the Hill could think that that's crazy when literally it's just become widespread accepted that that's the case. But I'd love for you to speak a little bit more about that kind of connection that you brought in. I just, I really appreciated it. 
Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, so I go through a bunch of, I kind of wind up my piece. I arrive in uh, South Africa, so to speak. I say, you know, those are the people who, because the whole piece is looking at whether or not Israel is, or making the case that Israel is indeed an apartheid state. And I say no one, you know, knows, isn't more familiar with apartheid than the people of South Africa who went through it. And apartheid is an Afrikaans word that means apartness. And it was their policy that they lived through. And so then I quote Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu, and then um, uh, I quote a uh, a South African minister who spoke just a couple of weeks ago at, at the UN General Assembly and basically mentioned uh, uh, the increasing like weighty scholarship uh, proving Israel is an apartheid state. And she actually cites uh, Daniel Levy, who was an Oslo negotiator. Who, who himself describes it as apartheid. So, wow. Yeah. 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 The evidence is there, <laughs> but yeah, it's overwhelming. overwhelming. Yeah. Now, I mean, I feel the people who don't like to hear this, it's like the honest thing to say is it's apartheid, but it needs to be. Mm. I mean, I don't think that's true, but that would be like the, it's just, you can't say it's not apartheid. So now you have to just figure out how to walk, t- talk around it. And I think the only way you can say it is that it is apartheid. And I think that that needs to happen, whatever they want to say about it. But the other thing is just not the facts on the ground are, are that it is apartheid. Yeah, it's like you either lean into that argument entirely or you don't. I mean, it's not it's right. not one or the other. Yeah, I mean, there really is so much to the story. I mean, we're going to play some of the monologue because we really want you guys to see it. But you got to watch the whole thing and, and really get the, the full breadth of context. You can see it on Breakthrough News and we'll link that in the description. But either way, I, I want to ask you, Katie, with all of things that have been going on, all the things that you've been feeling and really just all of this, the censorship that you've been experiencing, what are your kind of final thoughts for people to take away from not only the monologue that you've made, the story that you were originally trying to report on, but also what's then since happened. What do people really need to know in relationship to the mainstream media and how they consume media? Because I I think it's really important to get that perspective from a journalist who's been trying to tell the truth and was stopped from actually sharing what needs to be shared. Well, yeah, I would just say that you can, of course, subscribe to my show at youtube.com slash the Katie Helper show. I really hope people do that. Um, by the time this is released, I will have done a show with Norman Finkelstein, which I'm really looking forward to. He's great. Uh, also, Bronco Marchetich, who's going to be talking about his Jacobin piece on, uh, you know, Nexstar's kind of conflicts of interest. Um, I would also say that obviously what happened to me is nothing compared to what happened to Shireen Abouakle and all the other incredibly brave Palestinian journalists who have been killed on the ground or uh, uh, injured on the ground reporting. Um, and yeah, that I really hope that we can, uh, create a space where these kinds of conversations are possible. I mean, that's what I try to do at the Katie Helper show. That's what I try to do at Useful Idiots. I know that's what you guys try to do at Breakthrough News. Um, we just, I think that the most important thing is to keep, like, keep on keeping on and keep, to keep making media and, um, and telling stories that get, the, the word out there and, you know, like just fighting back when people say that it's anti-Semitic to criticize Israel. Oh, also one last thing. I just want to give a shout out to a couple of places that uh, Adala, who I use a lot of their, um, uh, their analysis uh, to, to when I was looking into the Israeli laws, they, they have a great database. Adala is a great website and organization, legal organization. 
Well, yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Katie. But before we go, I do want to play the monologue for everyone to be able to listen to. If you want to watch the rest of it, you can go to youtube.com backslash breakthrough news, youtube.com backslash breakthrough news or at BT Newsroom to find the links to see it. But it's definitely a very, very well-crafted piece of journalism. You have to check it out. And thank you so much for joining Katie. That was the voice of Katie Halper, host of the Katie Halper Show and co-host of the podcast Useful Idiots. The following monologue is something that I wrote, delivered, and recorded at the Hill. It was then censored, and I was then canceled and fired. Representative Rashida Tlaib has been condemned by some over comments she made about Israel. Here's CNN's Jake Tapper reporting on what the Michigan Democrat said and the response it prompted. Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan facing criticism today from what several of her Jewish colleagues have deemed anti-Semitic comments. Here's what Tlaib, the first Palestinian-American woman to serve in Congress, said at a virtual event yesterday. I want you all to know that among progressives, it has become clear that you cannot claim to hold progressive values, yet back Israel's apartheid government. And we will continue to push back and not accept this idea that you are progressive, progressive except for Philistine any longer. The CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Greenblatt, slammed the comments saying that Israel does not have an apartheid government and said that she should not be imposing a, quote, litmus test in a tweet saying, quote, Tlaib tells American Jews that they need to pass an anti-Zionist litmus test to participate in progressive space. Some of Tlaib's Jewish colleagues in Congress agreed. Florida Congresswoman Debbie Wasserman Schultz called her comments, quote, outrageous and, quote, nothing short of anti-Semitic. Debbie Wasserman Schultz is right. It is outrageous. It's outrageous that Rashida Tlaib is getting attacked. Tlaib is merely stating that Israel is an apartheid state and that people who claim to have progressive values cannot support an apartheid state. No matter how loose a definition of progressive we use, it certainly excludes supporting a racist apartheid system. What's outrageous is attacking Tlaib for pointing out that progressive except for Palestine is an intrinsically contradictory position. What's also outrageous is that the Anti-Defamation League's Jonathan Greenblatt would claim that Israel is not an apartheid government. What's outrageous is that Jake Tapper would accept Greenblatt's judgment as the truth and not propaganda that needed to be pushed back against. I understand that Greenblatt and perhaps Tapper feel like Israel is not an apartheid state, but unfortunately for them, apartheid isn't about your feelings. It's about facts. In 1973, the UN defined the crime of apartheid as any inhuman acts committed for the purpose of establishing and maintaining domination by one racial group of persons over any other racial group of persons and systematically oppressing them. In 1998, the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court defined apartheid as inhumane acts of a character that are committed in the context of an institutionalized regime of systematic oppression and domination by one racial group over any other racial group or groups and committed with the intention of maintaining that regime. These inhuman acts include, among others, infliction upon the members of a racial group or groups of serious bodily or mental harm by the infringement of their freedom or dignity or by subjecting them to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment, by arbitrary arrest and illegal imprisonment of the members of a racial group or groups, any legislative measures and other measures calculated to prevent a racial group or groups from participation in the political, social, economic, and cultural life of the country, and the deliberate creation of conditions preventing the full development of such a group or groups. In particular, by denying to members of a racial group or groups basic human rights and freedoms, 
including the right to leave and to return to their country, the right to a nationality, the right to freedom of movement and residence, the right to freedom of opinion and expression, and the right to freedom of peaceful assembly and association. I'd encourage Jake Tapper to look this up sometime. Here are just a few examples of Israel's apartheid policies. The law of return of 1950 allows any Jew, which means anyone with one Jewish grandparent, the right to return to Israel, the right to move to Israel and automatically become citizens of Israel. It gives their spouses that right too, even if they're not Jewish, though if they're Palestinian, that's another issue entirely. Palestinians, of course, lack that right. The Israeli citizenship law of 1952 deprived Palestinian refugees and their descendants of legal status, the right to return, and all other rights in their homeland. It also defined Palestinians present in Israel as Israeli citizens without a nationality and group rights. These laws together obviously fit into the International Criminal Court's apartheid criteria. More recently, the nation-state law established that the fulfillment of the right of national self-determination in the state of Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It demoted Arabic from an official language to a language with special status. It also stipulated the state views Jewish settlement as a national value and will labor to encourage and promote its establishment and development. These are just some of the reasons that human rights organizations have declared Israel an apartheid state. Al-Haq, Al-Mezin Center for Human Rights, Adala, the Legal Center for Arab Minority Rights in Israel, Adamir, Prisoner Support and Human Rights Association, Human Rights Watch, and Amnesty International have all documented Israeli apartheid policies. Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, has declared, the Israeli regime enacts an apartheid regime. B'Tselem divides the way Israeli apartheid works into four areas. Land. Israel works to Judaize the entire area, treating land as a resource chiefly meant to benefit the Jewish population. Since 1948, Israel has taken over 90% of the land within the Green Line and built hundreds of communities for the Jewish population. Citizenship. Jews living anywhere in the world, their children and grandchildren and their spouses are entitled to Israeli citizenship. In contrast, Palestinians cannot immigrate to Israeli-controlled areas even if they, their parents, or their grandparents were born and lived there. Israel makes it difficult for Palestinians who live in one of the units it controls to obtain status in another and has enacted legislation that prohibits granting Palestinians who marry Israelis status within the Green Line. Freedom of movement. Israeli citizens enjoy freedom of movement in the entire area controlled by Israel and may enter and leave the country freely. Palestinian subjects, on the other hand, require a special Israeli-issued permit to travel between the units and sometimes inside them, and exit abroad also requires Israeli approval. Political participation. Palestinian citizens of Israel may vote and run for office, but leading politicians consistently undermine the legitimacy of Palestinian political representatives. The roughly 5 million Palestinians who live in the occupied territories, including East Jerusalem, cannot participate in the political system that governs their lives and determines their future. I was born in New York City. My great-grandparents and the family before them were from Eastern Europe. I could move to Israel today, buy a house, get a job, travel around with no problem. So could Jake Tapper and Jonathan Greenblatt. But a Palestinian like Rashida Tlaib can't even visit her family home in what is now Israel. And again, if you want to hear the rest of this monologue, you can go to Breakthrough News by going to youtube.com backslash Breakthrough News. 
We're going to have to leave it right there. But before we go, if you like what you heard today and you really want to support independent media, you believe in the project of independent media, that without independent media, we would not be able to really have a pulse on what's going on around the world. I want to encourage you to become a patron at patreon.com backslash covert action magazine. Become a patron to get early access and exclusive content. And if you're not a patron, be sure to subscribe to get this content and past episodes as well. There's so much on our Patreon. We have an exclusive video as well with Katie Halper. But either way, you've been listening to Covert Action Bulletin, the official radio program and podcast of Covert Action Magazine. We've been exposing the covert action of the U.S. government and plutocrats worldwide since 1978. I'm your host, Rachel Hu. And if you missed any of our episodes, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you can find podcasts. Just go ahead and search for Covert Action Bulletin. We're all out of time for today. See you next week. Covert Action 